Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to the April edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. A proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode 291, we visit with Meredith Ritchie, author of Poster Girls, set in 1943 at Charlotte's largest wartime employer, a massive and dangerous shell assembly plant. Told from two perspectives, Poster Girls is driven by the true but forgotten events and accomplishments of a diverse group of American women, military wives and mothers, Maggie Sloan and Cora Bell, one white and one black, work together to unify the plant's workforce, support their families, and bring their husbands home. Paula Martinak, author of The Eight of Decades and Testimony and Dear Miss Cushman, says, Poster Girls by Meredith Ritchie celebrates the resilience and camaraderie of female munitions workers in Charlotte, North Carolina during World War II. You'll root for these finely crafted characters as they confront the limits placed on women, white and black, and uncover their own hidden skills and ingenuity. A stirring historical novel. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for spending some of your valuable time with us. We very much appreciate it, uh, and thank you for being here. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author, turned podcaster of books and stories, and love interviewing authors about their books and sharing that uh, with you, the listener. A few quick things to know about the podcast. Uh, You can listen to the podcast wherever you like to get your podcast on all major podcast platforms, but you can also get more at charlottereaderspodcast.com. At our website there, you can get show notes on each episode where we share information about uh, the authors who appear on the show. There's a guest list that shows all the authors with links to their episodes. There is a community blog where authors who have appeared on the show or who've submitted to the podcast can share their wisdom and knowledge about writing and book recommendations. And then we have a community vlog where we do some Facebook live interviews. Uh, If you like video, check that out. And then there's the book report you can sign up for uh, at the podcast website. That's where we share on a monthly basis information about the podcast, what's happening, what's coming. And uh, hey, we won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And if you like uh, audiobooks, check out Libro.fm. We have an affiliation with them because they support independent bookstores. And when you sign up, if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, you're going to get a free audiobook. On the Landis Wade front, check out LandisWade.com. That's where you can find out more about uh, me and my writing. I also have a blog there where I I write about uh, what I've learned uh, from authors and learn about the writing process. It's called Wade Scripts. And we have a newsletter you can sign up for there, uh, the Landis Wade Author Newsletter. And shameless plug here, I have a novel out uh, as of April 5th. It is called Deadly Declarations. It is a novel about a trio of unlikely retirees who set out to solve the mystery of the supposed Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. That is, if they don't die trying, I'd love to have you check that out. You can find out more at LandisWade.com and wherever books are sold. And now, let's get to the episode. Meredith, welcome to the show. Thank you, Landis. And congratulations on your debut novel. Thank you. Yeah. Now, I want to start here. You say on your website that after discovering how your hometown, my hometown of Charlotte, uh, forgot its own uh, amazing 
her story that became the perfect setting for your novel. So I want to talk about that. Let's talk about what Charlotte Tings, including myself, uh, forgot about or never knew about uh, this this U.S. rubber company place known as the Shell Plant. What was it and where was it? Yeah, um, apparently they were set up really fast uh, in response to the U.S. war efforts uh, all over the country. And, uh, and Charlotte had one, had a huge one that was really uh, copied over many cities. And uh, it was very well known um, by D.C. and, and uh, known for its safety record and just um, it employed 10,000 people. But no, no one. It seems like, you know, the day the Japanese surrendered, uh, they told them all to go home. And they were all expected to, I mean, no one was expected to talk about it during the war. That was the loose lips, sink ships kind of mantra. And they sort of took that into uh, post-war lives as well. They're just happy to go back um, to what it was and, and, and continue not talking about it. So where was it located? Oh, yes. It was in Steel Creek area. So when I first, um, when I first had the idea to write this story, um, I wanted it to be a women's empowerment story. Uh, I think I first pitched it as a, a women's leadership parable. And, and someone told me, uh, don't use that pitch. That's boring. <laughs> so, but it still is, you know, women's kind of leadership parable. And I, and I needed a setting for it. And I've always learned more through historical fiction and the, the personal stories about characters than I ever did through history books. Sorry for any history uh, professors out there. Um, but uh, so I wanted to, um, I wanted to find a, a good setting and I thought that Camp North End might be it. I had just been out there and seen the really cool history there. But in World War II, it was um, a, just they sent out, sent out supplies. So it wasn't really, um, you know, the perfect setting. And then through that research, Googling it, I stumbled upon this 2,200 acre, 250 plus building campus um, that was built in Steel Creek in six months time uh, at the end of 1942. Is there anything left of what was that facility at the time? Um, all the original buildings are gone, but there was a fire in June of 44. And that was at the main cafeteria. And that main cafeteria was rebuilt. And it is the only standing building is my what my research shows, and that's from a gentleman um, who writes for the Steel Creek neighborhood. Uh, it's actually a Mexican restaurant at the corner of Westinghouse and Tryon. So uh, I've, I've been there three times now. It's a really good Mexican restaurant. <laughs> it was where I uh, signed my um, contract with my publisher, my local publisher, Warren Publishing. Yes. Yeah, so this must have been a, um, you know, you, you're certain you want to write a story. You want to write a novel. You're searching for a setting. Um, you come across this and you realize that uh, women were employed in massive numbers at this plant. Did that just become the, the perfect setting for what you were about to write? You're exactly right. Yeah. It just, it, it, there were so many aspects of this book that seemed to just fall into place. Um, you know, I had the idea before, uh, the Me Too movement really broke out um, before Black Lives Matter um, really came to the forefront uh, in 2020. And so sort of um, my own awakening was mirrored in, in the actual book. So, you know, that I could not have foreseen in 2017 when I first had the idea. Yeah, 2,300 acres um, around the clock. Uh, yeah, three shifts. Three shifts. Mm -hmm. 
under strict safety rules to offset the danger it posed. And what kind of danger did it pose, Meredith? Well, um, they didn't make anything. So it had a huge network of train tracks, and it basically brought in all the pieces of these 40-millimeter shells. So um, it's about 18 inches long and 40 millimeters in diameter. So they were huge bullets that were shot off of uh, Navy ships. And they filled them, they just assembled them. So they would fill them with, with the tracer papers and the gunpowder. And they had, and then they were tested down in Watery Pond uh, in South Carolina. So if they passed testing, then they went on within 24 hours, they were going off to war, the bullets were. And um, so they didn't make anything. They just assembled them there. But the amount of gunpowder that was at that facility, that's why there were so many different buildings, because if one caught fire or blew up or what have you, they, you know, they didn't want it necessarily to affect all of them. They're trying to, to contain that risk. Interesting. Now, a little bit about you. You, um, you got an MBA. You made a career in business communications, mostly in banking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you say you wrote Poster Girls, your first novel as a cure for what you called acute emptiness syndrome after your triplets left for college. My question is, did it cure you? <laughs> I, yeah, yes. If you can match the success of maybe comparing what I would have done to what I, my level of involvement in their lives as it panned out, as I was distracted by the novel, I probably would have helicopter parented them from three campuses a lot more uh, than I did. So, uh, so I think they appreciate that. And, uh, and I have too, it, it was, it just, it just gave me a, uh, an outlet to, uh, really explore what, what do I want to do, you know, now that they're figuring that out for themselves. Well, I would ask you how hard it is to write a novel. I know from personal experience, but you've raised three triplets. So <laughs> what could be harder, right? Yeah. Yeah. This uh, definitely raising triplets is harder. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> so, that's right. So most people come into the idea of writing a novel. They say, I don't think I can ever do this. And yeah. you say, well, I've raised you know, triplets. Yeah. I can do anything. Yeah. And I never I never knew what to um that that, that was so rare that to start a novel, uh only three percent of people ever finish it. Um I I didn't know that statistic until after I finished it. So that was an interesting um kind of data point to have. It's similar to the statistic that, you know. Anyone who starts a podcast hardly ever gets past five episodes. True. So, that is a good so, point. You, know, you have this great idea, you want yeah. to get into it, and it's exciting at first, and then you realize this is a lot of work. I know. It's a lot to do. Exactly. Yeah. Wait, wait. Yeah. So, I remember when I finished, you know, type the end, and then um, I, I was a student at uh, Charlotte Litt's Authors Lab in 2019. And I remember, you know, sitting in front of Paul and Kathy, and I'm like, well, I'm, I'm going to finish this and then, and then be done. Like I was really all about being done. And they were like, no, that's just the start of a whole nother phase of editing and more editing and taking it apart and putting it back together. And uh, that was a, a light bulb moment for me, but I did it. Yeah, I, I think a lot of new writers don't realize how much goes into uh, getting beyond the first draft. Um yes. The end is often just the beginning, mm-hmm. right? It is. It really is. Yeah. So. And you mentioned Authors Lab. I want to talk about that a little bit because, yeah. uh, you know, I, I've enjoyed my membership at uh, the Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, which we call Charlotte Lit, uh, uh, Kathy Collins and uh, Paul Reale. Uh Tell us about this program you're involved mm-hmm. in. Um, you, you had a cohort. You had a time period. You had a 
you know, process. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about that for people that might be interested in Authors Lab. Yeah, uh, I knew I knew enough to know that there was so much I didn't know about writing fiction. And uh, I talked to several authors, um, local authors in Charlotte, like, okay, this is what I want to do. Here's my idea. How do I bring it to fruition? And the both local authors I talked to, um, Sarah Creech and Kathy Izzard, said you should go to Charlotte Lit and and look into their their programs there. So that's how I found out about Authors Lab. It was a year long program in 2019. We met for one full day, uh, one Saturday a month, uh, and you literally it was the one the the best discipline to learn not only the craft of writing but also to have. Uh, I call it like the the exercise accountability of, you know, someone's going to be there on this date and expect you to have a decently written chapter. And then they're all going to sit around a table of, you know, 12 to 14 people and critique it. So that was wonderful motivation for me to really um, meet some deadlines that you know, I might not have done um, had I not had that structure. Yeah, I think Kathy Collins, uh, co-founder of Charlotte Lit, was quoted in an article that they did on you about mm -hmm. uh, the experience. And she talks about how Authors Lab provides you know, strong writing practices, you know, habits, discipline, word mm -hmm. count goals, covers topics like revision, technology, yes. building a writing community, uh, getting and receiving feedback, which is not often easy, and then navigating the publishing world. So with all that in mind, you've gone through that. Mm -hmm. How much harder was it? Um, to do than you actually thought it would be when you got into it? Well, I just, you know, actually similar to, to raising triplets, um, if I ever thought about, you know, their driving years when they were, you know, going to kindergarten, I, I would have frozen. So I really could only take things like one year at a time, one stage at a time. And I approached this the same way. So I would, um, I, I tackled the, uh, you know, writing, I think I was about two thirds of the way done um, after the author's lab. And then, and then COVID hit and COVID actually became a really, because I was sitting in the house for so long, um, a really good motivation for something good to coming out of all that, you know, horribleness of, of being in, in, um, in lockdown. And so I kind of finished uh, the book in, in COVID um, and kept my, uh, my writing coach, um, Paula Martinak, uh, through that I it, um, met through Authors Lab, and then you know then the revision process uh, came to be, and that was um, I've always loved puzzles. Uh, actually, that was surprising because uh, I didn't realize how much of a puzzle it was. Like you really had to. It was it was beyond the the spreadsheet that Kathy and Paul kind of you know kidded me for when I walked into Authors Lab. Here's, here's my 40 scenes and here's the order that it's going to, you know, all come about in. And, uh, and you really do have to, to break that apart into pieces. And, and when you make a change, when you get your first draft, you make a change to one thing, you know, later in the story, you have to go back and find out how that changed the entire puzzle and how you have to, to maneuver the pieces. Um, and so that part of it, I actually enjoyed because I do like, it's, it was like a hundred thousand word puzzle. And I like them. Sometimes authors are not able to accept the kind of feedback that uh, makes their uh, manuscripts tighter uh, because they don't want to give up on certain uh, sections or storylines mm -hmm. of their books or certain characters. Uh, were you able to to take the feedback and actually cut 
a lot and reorder and do the things you needed to do to make this flow the way it does? Absolutely. I mean, in, in the business world, I have a, a training uh, and communications background and it's all about feedback. I've always considered feedback a gift and, and always looked at it in that um, frame is this person is giving you their time. I mean, sometimes I was, it was exchange for money, but um, they were giving me their time to give me their honest opinion of something that they cared about. And some, a lot of times they saw things that I never would have seen. Yeah. Okay. So let's uh, talk a bit about the book before sure. we have to do a read, reading here. Um, we've got uh, sort of uh, this time period is 1943. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got a military wife and mother, Maggie Sloan. Uh, um, you also have uh, a military wife and Alabama native Cora Bell, and they come together. Tell us a little bit about each of them and how they come together. Yeah, they come together for their love of books. So I've always loved books, um, especially historical fiction. Uh, I've been in a, a book club for 20, almost 24 years now. Um, that started, we were uh, worked at Bank of America together, still meet every month. And um, so the, the conversations that that group has had that have grown around you know, uh, really deep conversations around a, a more benign storyline uh, is inspired me to to kind of figure out how two people that might be living in different areas of Charlotte or come you know from very different backgrounds how they might connect, and that's where they met is at the uh, the Carnegie Library in Charlotte. Yeah, you know, and, and you're dealing with a, a historic time period as well here. Um, how much resource did you have to do to kind of get back into that mindset? Because you're you're a mother raising triplets and a businesswoman in a different time period than what Maggie Sloan was going through as as a white woman. Yeah. Uh, and you are a white woman, so you're not necessarily directly connected to what Cora Bell was going through either probably then or now. So you probably had to do research on both these characters. I did. Uh, Google became uh, my friend in that. And I would, you know, I would write something every morning, you know, before work, I would, I would write. And that was my kind of routine. And uh, so I'd write for about two hours and then leave it, you know, and the next day I would look at it and I would of course hate many parts of it, Re you know, delete it, rewrite it, what have you. But I'd also go back and go, okay, that's what Meredith in 2020 would think. That's what she would do. Or did those circumstances even exist back then? So I was Googling things like, well, one time I was, I was describing her dining room table and I was like, oh, I, I see it as a, a laminated table. And then I was like, wow, when didn't laminate ever <laughs> come to be? <laughs> and so I had to like, Google the history of laminated tables. <laughs> so when did that even, the product come about? Turns out the, uh, came about earlier than you would think. Um, so that was just one example, a uh, more benign example. But yeah, I, uh, the feedback that I got, especially from, from Paula Martinak, who's written so many uh, period pieces uh, and also understands about, you know, sensitivity readers. So I definitely, you know, I got as many sensitivity readers as I could. Um, a wonderful friend, uh, Marla Mann, was uh, instrumental in giving that kind of perspective because there were many things that my brain just didn't have the experience to be able to see. And um, that was really important for me to, you know, I don't know if I got it all right, but um, I definitely got 
more right than I would have had I not, you know, consulted with this. Hi, well, we're going to do a little reading now. Uh, we're, we're Charlotte Reese Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. And you've got a scene here. It's early in the book, uh, but, but uh, if you would, before you read it, just uh, set this up, who's in the scene, so we know on, and uh, then take it away whenever you're ready. All right, yeah. So this is Maggie, um, and she is uh, is new to Charlotte. So she lived in, in Boston uh, with her husband, and then in her she doesn't really have uh, much of a, a family in Boston. So Charlie moves them to Charlotte uh, right before he reenlists in the army and goes off to fight in the war. And so, um, you know, Maggie has, has been there for uh, about a year at that point, and she's not made um, many friends. And she decides she wants to go. She responds to the posters that are all over Charlotte at the time, uh, encouraging women to sign up to help with the war effort. And she sees um, working at the plant as a way that she can actually do something. So, um, but she also has twin girls that are, I believe, eight at this time. And she realizes that, you know, she needs her family to take care of them. And the, and the parents, her in-laws are not exactly supportive of their recruitment of women uh, away from their children. So she wants to, uh, she has to approach that and she has to approach it the right way. With her, especially with her mother-in-law. So here it goes. Maggie tried to listen to the conversation while judging the best time to make the bold statement she practiced all day. She was running out of time, but could, it couldn't feel forced. She willed her voice to stay strong, keep the focus on grace and everything grace would gain. I've taken a job at the U.S. Rubber Company, she said in her best casual run-of-the-mill dinner conversation voice. You know, the shell plant, Grace's fork slipped from her hand, but she caught it before it made a sound. What's that, dear? She asked slowly. I've taken a job at the U.S. Rubber Company Naval Ammunitions Plant, she repeated, even slower, then let it sink in. What an awkward mouthful of words, even to her ears. No wonder everyone shortened the name to Shell Plant. Grace's long lashes batted and her lips stayed parted. I'm not sure what to say. She threw her napkin over her plate like her appetite had vanished. You could say, congratulations. Maggie took a sip of wine for courage. My first day is next week. I know you don't agree with my decision, but I would be grateful if the girls could come here before and after school. They will have daycare soon, but I'd much rather they stay with family. She paused for effect. Plus, you might enjoy the extra time with them, and I know they would benefit from your influence. Grace looked across the table at her husband, who nodded his agreement to her silent question. Raising her own glass to lips, she let it hover in the air between her and Maggie. This can't be about money, dear. You know we'll cover anything you need, anything. Grace held Maggie's eyes over the rim as she finally took a sip, then set the stemware down with purpose. Money is one of the reasons, Maggie looked down at her plate of fine bone china. Charlie has always had expensive taste. Grace shot back. It's not a crime to like nice things, dear. That's true. He also wanted to buy a house close to you, but it has stretched us too far and the war has gone on longer than he planned. Do they know? Grace tilted her head toward the girls. Yes, we discussed it last week. Maggie noticed her squirming children. Girls, I think I hear Percy whining at the door for you. Go keep him company outside for a bit, please. The girls pushed back their chairs and stood. Please carry your empty plates to the kitchen. Lucy will get them tomorrow, Grace said. Once they were out of earshot, 
Grace threw her hands toward the coffered ceiling. There has to be another way. His pay allowance isn't covering all our bills. Maggie kept her voice level. Charlie's plan is not playing out like he thought. No one's is. She looked at her father-in-law. It's sweet of you to offer money, but what the girls and I really need is your time and support. George leaned over to pat Maggie's hand, but he understood not to speak first on such family matters. This was not his territory. Grace continued. That plant is dangerous, Maggie, with enough explosives to affect half of Charlotte. George said as much to the chamber, but got outnumbered. Grace looked at the door the girls had just exited through. Their father is in grave danger. Now their mother too? I understand how you feel, she said to Grace before turning to George on the slim chance it would help. You wouldn't believe the safety protocols they follow there. They are military precise. This was not a fast decision. I truly weighed every risk and benefit. Maggie turned back to Grace, took a deep breath, and threw down her ace card. You spending more time with the girls will be a gift for all of us. She practiced the last sentence carefully, knowing Grace was eager to impart more of a Southern influence on her only grandchildren. Grace stayed quiet, hopefully considering the possibilities, as Maggie continued. It's important to end this war as soon as possible. Charlie has already missed so much of the girls' lives. I know it's dangerous. Trust me, I've never had something I've been so scared to do and scared not to do all at the same time. I'm also tired of waiting for our lives to go back to normal. Conscious of talking too much with her hands, Maggie let them fall on her lap. I need to do something. You are raising two perfect children. Isn't that enough? You could grow a victory garden like me. Heavens, I practically begged you to come to my junior league volunteer meetings. Maybe you could finally make a few friends here. George cleared his throat with obvious timing. Grace had crossed a line. I love that scene, and that's why I asked you to read it. Uh, you can just see the, the the Southern matriarch trying to control everything uh, just going on with her daughter-in-law and her, her grandchildren, right? Yep, yep, and and who have been raised uh, to, in Boston to date. So she was excited. You know, that, that was her motivation. Like, she would get to, to raise them a different way. Yeah, and you can tell that, that Maggie and also Cora, who we meet uh, also soon in the book, mm-hmm. Both these women are very uh, determined. They're also uh, somewhat confident and self-reliant. Uh, so did you know where you're going to take this story? I don't want you to give away any spoilers or anything uh, at the end here, but uh, you know, them having to integrate themselves back into normal society after this plant closes, uh, that's an, a, that was an abrupt circumstance for many women who actually got out into the workforce and rolled up their sleeves and felt like they were contributing to the bottom line and so forth. Yeah, that, that, that is a part I didn't know when I started writing the book. And that was part of my uh, awakening and, and understanding what really happened for many people of color in Charlotte at that time. Um, so I, I talked to uh, people like Dr. Willie Griffin from the Levine Museum of New South, uh, Brandon Lunsford at um, Johnson C. Smith to kind of understand that at the time, you know, the only options for for black women were to work um, as domestic help. And they made about $3 a week. And then um, Roosevelt's uh, um, executive order, uh, 8802, I learned, Google, um, was uh, was set and, and was the first to, to ban racial discrimination within the defense industry only. Um, and so that was what 
prevented any kind of wage discrimination based on, on race. So they were able to go from $3 a week to making $25 to $30 a week uh, for this brief period. And then it all ended and, and they, you know, they took, you know, different paths, but they, uh, you know, a lot of them, that was their only option was to go back into um, domestic service. Yeah. And for the, for the white women whose role in life was simply to be, you know, a spouse, uh, a, a caregiver for their children uh, and to have dinner ready when the husband got home, mm-hmm. <laughs> a long day of work, you know, it goes back to what's on the cover of your book, Poster Girls, yeah. the woman who's holding a vacuum cleaner, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of uh, one of the final scenes is, you know, the, the difference in the, the posters that were trying to get women to come into the workforce and do their part and you, we can do it and you can do it. And um, there were, you know, actually the diversity that was represented in the posters was, was phenomenal. And then, you know, all that changed and yeah, I can understand, I can recognize that people wanted things to go back to normal because it had been so not normal for so long, much longer than they anticipated before they entered the war. Um, but, you know, it's just a, a shame that the, the inspiration or the examples that women were given uh, didn't really stick, I guess. Yeah. Talk about the title, Poster Girls. Um, so Poster Girls was, uh, that was one of the most stressful parts about doing this is to, to title uh, a work like this. Cause there were so many different directions that I could have taken it. And, um, and I went through a lot of really bad titles. I have to say, I just wrote some of them down and, and, and there were at least five that were just really bad. Um, and so what I did was, uh, I, I had seen another local author do this is I put every word that meant something, you know, in the book and I put them all on individual uh, index cards and then set all of those on the floor in my guest room. And, uh, and then just started piecing them together. Well, I like that word. Let's see how that looks with all these other ones. And that's how I, I finally came up with, um, with poster girls. And then my, my sister-in-law actually, after being one of my beta readers, she had the idea for the, the cover. And I said, that's, that's it. Poster girls. And is that because of the posters that were advertising work at the shell plant? Yes, it was because those posters um, this is actually like a, a picture of a, of a billboard, you know, being, uh, being coming down or whatever, or being replaced. Uh, and then the, there was, you know, there were postings in a lot of these plants of this executive order that, uh, that president Roosevelt's executive order that banned racial discrimination. So that was an important poster as well. Okay. Well, interesting. Well, um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the, a little bit more about the writing of it. Uh, you yeah. chose to write it, uh, in, two points of view, third person close, uh, to tell this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, what went into that decision-making process? Yeah, that's another really, uh, tough or nuanced decision, right. For a new author is, is what point of view to take. Uh, I don't know if you experienced that within your own writings, but, uh, there's, there's a lot of different ways that you could can slice that. And, um, so I, I kind of embarrassed to admit, but I, I, I said, well, which one is the easiest for a new writer? And so Paul and Kathy told me it's third person close. I'm like, sign me up. That's the one I'm going to do. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's the most honest answer. It was. <laughs> it was nothing beyond that. I was like, what's the easiest one? I'm not, you know, I've got so many other hurdles to, um, 
to, to tackle. I'm not willing to die on this one. <laughs> so. and, and, and some people would disagree with you because sometimes for some people, writing in first person is easier. But, but uh, you know, when you're, when you're introducing a lot of different characters or you mm-hmm. want to introduce a lot of different characters, uh, yeah, it might be, you know, you can get into the heads of different people, which you did in this book. You, you actually got into the head of Maggie and Cora and yeah. others. It's as also well, how I that. read too. You know, when I'm reading a book, it's like I'm right behind them. You know, like I, I like, I like that point of view, I think as a reader as well. So it was easy for me to kind of, to manifest that, but, but there were a couple of other points of view that I had, I think I had four at one point. And so that was the, the magic and the grace of, of editing and having wonderful editors like, you know, Betsy Thorpe and Kim Wright. And uh, they were like, yeah, kill that point of view character. Not, not kill the character, but kill, you know, that, that person does not need to be a point of view. Then then another one dropped. And they were like, really, it, it should be just the, um, the different perspectives of Cora and Maggie. And that's how that was born. So, so usually, you know, it, it, well, in a novel, there's, you know, there's the protagonist and then there's the antagonist. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the antagonist mm-hmm. is a person. Sometimes it's a place. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a circumstance of the world around them. What would you consider to be the antagonist for these characters? Yeah, that was interesting. I remember that was a lesson in, in author's lab and I kind of drew this, um, this square box, you know, so it had, you know, Maggie and Cora there as, as the protagonists. And then the antagonists were, um, for, for Maggie, at, at first it's Grace, right? Because Grace doesn't want her to do certain things. Grace wants her to be the kind of person that she's not. Um, Leland is also sort of an antagonist because same reason. Um, he wants Maggie to be something that she's not. Uh, and then for both of them, one of the antagonists is society at the time. So uh, what society was telling them that they should be and what they should accept and what they were willing to to not accept. So, yeah, well, it's an interesting book uh, set in Charlotte. Uh, Charlotte business person turned a novelist uh, using Authors Lab at Charlotte to help her get there, and some local authors and, and editors and community support. Hey, listeners, uh, before we wrap up here, I just want to let you know that uh, Meredith and I are going to jump over to Patreon here in just a moment, and uh, we're going to talk about uh it's gonna be like 10 minutes of uh tips about reading and writing uh learn some things that she's reading and a few other tips uh, in her writing journey you can join us there at patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash charlotte readers podcast and you can help support the podcast when you do so meredith as we wrap up here um i usually ask this question actually one other thing so your book new book deadly declarations kind of does something similar to all the people that have moved into charlotte Many of them, you know, never knew the shell plant existed, uh, but many of them never knew Charlotte's, you know, history in 1775 with the Declaration. <laughs> so I love using story to teach people about a place they now call home. Yeah, that's that's great. I, it was one of those things I talk about history hiding in plain sight. Yeah. Your book is a good example of that. And my book, Deadly Declarations, though it's celebrated by a small group of people here in Charlotte, uh, not many people know about the Charlotte's history and the Revolutionary War being the the first, if you believe the story, to declare independence from Great Britain. (laughs) So, so, uh, but look, I want to ask this question before I wrap up because I do this for authors who've written more than one book, but sometimes given your journey, I want to ask it too. Um, If you could tell you something very helpful, Meredith, uh, about the writing process that you've learned through everything you've gone through now, that had you known it when you got started would have probably made a difference to you early on, what would that be? Well, 
definitely to find a writing group. I heard that a lot and that's easier said than done sometimes. I mean, there are places that can, um, that can facilitate that, you know, author's lab would be one of them, you know, but that the, the library would be another one, but it still has to kind of happen organically, right? You can't call someone up and go, can I join your writer's group? And, you know, that's a little, uh, would well, be hard. I guess you could, but it would be difficult. Um, and really it's, but that, that connection with somebody else who's going through the same thing at the same time as you are, and that accountability of someone's going to ask you about it, um, that I, I don't think I would have done it without, without that. Um, and, and, and born from author's lab was one of, you know, my greatest blessings, um, afterwards is a, it's our awe circle of women, uh, A-W-E is what we kind of named ourselves. Um, but we were all in that same author's lab, uh, class and we meet still, um, every other month to, uh, to go over whatever we're writing and to critique each other and support each other. And unfortunately we had to move to, to zoom, uh, for the most part, but hopefully we'll be meeting again. And, um, that has been, uh, one of the, I didn't realize how important that would have been at the start of the journey, but I would say, I don't know if I would have finished otherwise. And, and that's really good advice. And I, and I have authors ask me questions from time to time about how do I do this or how to do that. This is going to be the kind of episode I'll, I'll direct them to because essentially um, it's about building a community and getting involved in a community uh, and supporting others. And then when you do, they support you. So great, great advice, Meredith. Uh, great experience. I, I love uh, how your journey has gone here. Um, so I want to thank you for being a part of Charlotte Readers Podcast. Thank you, Landis. I appreciate it. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.